As has already been said, we hope that you're planning on staying this evening for Evangelism Fair. Lots of great things are ongoing. We, uh, we currently know of about three Bible studies ongoing. Another about to start later this week. We've had people text friends and loved ones saying, who are you people who are sending all these cards? It's, they're texting their friends saying, we can't believe what we're getting from this church. There's a lot of good things ongoing. And uh, tonight's a wonderful opportunity to uh, see other things that are going on and be encouraged by that. Next Sunday morning, we're going to be missing, missing some folks who will be at uh, Challenge Youth Conference in the Pigeon Forge area. We know have a great group going there. We'll be missing Noah and Allison next Sunday. They're kind of like getting married next Saturday or something. They'll be on their honeymoon to Monkey's Eyebrow. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, we're excited to have Allison here. And uh, we are thrilled for Noah and Allison and uh, look forward to uh, having them here permanently together and uh, hope this week, this non-stressful getting ready for wedding week, no big deal at all. I uh, hope it's a, a joy for them. The ways of God are not our ways. We're told that specifically. Isaiah the prophet, speaking for God, said, My, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. We want to know the mind of God as best we can. Of course, we know we can't know everything. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says there are secret things that belong to the Lord. But we want to know the mind of God as best we possibly can. But we know we can't know everything. Only He knows the future. Only God can connect every possible conceivable dot, if you will. He can, only He can put every piece of the puzzle together to know why this happens or that happens or how that's going to happen, even something in the future. And at times during His ministry, Jesus tapped into that. There were times where Jesus would do things knowing some people wouldn't understand them. You might think, for example... Back earlier in Mark, when we studied the parable of the sower and how he ended that parable by, by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we explained the parable. He basically was saying there are some people who are not going to understand these things basically because they don't want to. They have ears that won't hear. They have, their minds are blinded to those truths. But there are other times where Jesus says some things or asked some things of certain people knowing they would begin to put some of those puzzle pieces together. He didn't want to give them all the information directly. He wanted them to think. He wanted them to piece some of those things together. As Clark mentioned a few moments ago, the text we're studying this morning follows that Mount of Transfiguration account we studied last week from Mark chapter 9. Just completely overwhelming account with Peter, James, and John who are there with Jesus. And all of this stuff that happened there, Jesus being transformed... Uh, transfigured the, the, uh, the fact that Moses and Elijah are there, a cloud overshadows things, God the Father speaks, all of this stuff happens. But what follows in these verses that we're considering this morning can almost seem like flyover territory. Because we have been on the mountaintop of this amazing event and what's recorded in verses 9 through 13 are just a very private conversation that doesn't seem to have taken all that long. But the Holy Spirit wanted these things recorded for us and to help us put something together about the pieces of God's plan. We're going to examine this text this morning under three observations and help us to see how some of these things that Jesus has been talking about for a brief time 
begin to come together in the minds of these apostles. Number one in this text, there is confusion. As they come down from the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus tells these apostles something, but it's kind of interesting to me what begins to confuse them. You remember, He, he tells them not to tell anybody about this until after He's been raised from the dead. The, the word that Mark uses, He says He charged them to do that. This is a very strong word. The word literally means to set apart for something. He's basically looking at these three and saying, I'm telling you this directly. Sometimes you might bring a child or a grandchild and look them right in the eye and say, this is for you. That's what this word means. Jesus is telling these three, this is for the three of you to know. But I find it interesting that what confuses them is not that He told them not to talk about it. Or at least, not to talk about it for a while. Maybe that's because He had done things like that before. You might recall sometimes where Jesus healed someone and then sometimes the word is used. He charged them not to speak this or sound this about in that region. It was all about the timing of God, why He would say that. Of course, sometimes we jokingly say, but they went and said it anyway, right? Those who were healed just continually kept basically going out and talking about it. But maybe that's why the fact that these apostles were told not to say anything or not to say anything for a while, maybe that's why that part didn't confuse them. But what they were confused about was all this talk about resurrection. Jesus had just begun to talk about specifically to them the fact that He would be killed and the fact that He would be raised. These three, Peter, James, and John, had been on that mountain with, with Jesus and with these who appeared with Him, Moses and Elijah, and, and the Bible says they spoke to Him about His exodus, His departure. By the way, we don't know if Peter, James, and John heard that conversation or not. I think they did, but it doesn't specifically say that. But if they did, that they're, they're hearing something about that. And now as they're coming down from the mountain, Jesus is bringing it up again. I don't want you to talk about these events, this transfiguration thing, until, if I may paraphrase, I've been resurrected. We know the rest of the story. Put yourselves in their shoes for a second. This had to be completely, overwhelmingly confusing. You have this, this rabbi, this one you know is a great teacher, this one who is your leader, and he's just started talking about not just... I'm going to die, not even going to kill, but I'm going to overcome that? I'm going to erase from the dead? They're struggling with that. And it leads then to a question. The question that they ask is based upon something good. By the way, I think it's interesting that maybe, <laughs> maybe these three sort of distance themselves from the question just a little bit. Because if you notice, they, they, they say in verse uh, 11, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, if they weren't interested in that question, why are they asking why the scribes are talking about it? I think maybe they're sort of distancing themselves a little bit by saying that the scribes have this question here. The scribes have this discussion about Elijah coming first. You know, the scribes in the New Testament sometimes get a bad rap, and often rightfully so. 
But when it came to what did the text of the Old Testament say, they knew it. Because their work as scribes was to copy the Old Testament. Sometimes just specific parts of the Old Testament. I'm not trying to be flippant, but I might have been a scribe of Jeremiah. And I copied Jeremiah over and over and over. Well, guess what? After a few years, I'm going to know what Jeremiah says. I might not understand everything about it, but I'm going to know the text. And the Old Testament, as we have it divided up, ends with the book of Malachi. The, the Jews ordered, they have the same books, they order their books differently. But the very end of what we know as the Old Testament ends with this prophecy about Malachi. The, old, the, the scribes knew that. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 talks about Elijah must come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it tells what he would do. And he, and, and, Malachi 4 and verse 6, He will turn the hearts of the fathers toward their children and turn the hearts of the children before their fathers unless the Lord come and destroy them. So when this, the scribes are talking about the fact that Elijah must come, they were talking about something specifically from the Old Testament. And now you're Peter, now you're James, now you're John, and you've seen Elijah. And you've got this prophecy rolling around in your head. I don't think it's limited to these things, but I think that at least these things could have been behind why they're confused and questioning about this whole thing about the scribes giving this prophecy. Okay? We just saw Elijah come, Peter, James, and John. But we're the only ones that saw him. How is he supposed to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers, when only three people plus Jesus saw him? How is that supposed to work? Or that prophecy said that Elijah would come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Okay, we just saw Elijah. Are we standing on the edge of some great movement of God? Or sometimes the day of the Lord in the Old Testament especially was used of a judgment of God. Are we getting ready to see God judge? Maybe Rome or something else because we've seen Elijah right before the, the, the coming of the day of the Lord. So is that what's going on here? Or... Or maybe, why'd he leave? He didn't turn any hearts of fathers to children or children of fathers. He appeared and talked to Jesus and Moses for, we don't know how long, a few minutes, a few hours, we don't know, and then he, he left. Is he going to come back again? Is, what's going on here? There might be some other things that are going through their mind, but if they have in mind that prophecy from, prophecy, excuse me, from Malachi, we can see how at least those three thoughts might have been going through their minds like, this doesn't make any sense. We just saw Elijah, and now he's gone. And nothing of that prophecy seems to have come true, at least not in the immediate moment. Now, we can kind of be upset with the apostles or make fun of them a little bit and say, you know, yeah, they should have distanced themselves from that, say the scribes are talking about this. But let's at least give them credit for this. They're asking about something or bringing up a situation here that's based in Scripture, that is relevant to what they just saw, and they're asking the right person. They're asking Jesus for some level of explanation, some level of clarification of what's going on. So let's at least give them credit for that. That they're, they're wanting to know if what the scribes are teaching and maybe what they believe or what they're trying to figure out, are we looking at this correctly? There's, there's a great level of respect for that. That they're coming to the right source with a good question based upon what they've just seen based in Scripture. And with that, Jesus gives the explanation. How Jesus 
answers their question is, of course, brilliant. Because what he does not do is give them every detail. He gives them enough to keep them thinking so they can piece the puzzle together. First, he talks about the fact that Elijah does come. So he's basically saying the scribes are right about that prophecy. They, they've got it right as far as what they're quoting. And, and you're, you're, you have him right here. There's a connection with Elijah. He, he doesn't say, you know, you didn't actually see Elijah there. No, that, that was him. And you're, you're thinking in the right section of Scripture as far as the fact that Elijah, Elijah, okay, there we go. But then brilliantly, Jesus turns the entire conversation on its head. Because instead of continuing to talk about Elijah for a moment, he talks about himself. Keep that in mind for where we're going in just a few moments. Jesus is trying to help them to see that it's fine to think about that prophecy about Elijah from Malachi chapter 4. But that's not the only prophecy about his ministry. Jesus turns the conversation from that fact that Elijah came and all that stuff to there's going to be suffering involved in all of this. There's negative stuff involved in all of this. And by the way, there's a whole lot more from the Old Testament prophets dealing with the suffering of the Messiah than there is this one little prophecy from the end of Malachi. Just one example, one we often read before we eat the Lord's Supper, Isaiah chapter 53. Really, it goes back up into chapter 52, about 15, 20 verses that deal over and over and over and over again with the suffering of that one who was to come, the Messiah. Jesus is trying to get them to see that it's wonderful to think about that one prophecy, but you have to put the whole picture together. And that picture involved suffering. It involved dying, being killed. It involved the resurrection. It involved this Elijah figure. All those sorts of things. But then Jesus turns the conversation around again. And notice the past tense. Elijah has come. And he's not talking about the one who was just on top of the mountain with him a few minutes earlier. And we know that because he says, and they did with him whatever they pleased. Now this is one of those places where it's helpful to put together different accounts of the gospel. Matthew also records this same account, almost word for word. It's very, very close. Except Matthew adds a very important detail in his recounting of this event. Because when Matthew records in Matthew chapter 17, after he says that, you know, that they'll do with him whatever they wish, Matthew records they got it. Matthew 17, I believe it's verse 13, says the disciples realized he was talking about John the Baptist. I want to give those three guys credit. I'm not sure I would have gotten it. The fact that they were able to piece together this prophecy that they had, I don't say a wrong view, but a misunderstood view of, they were hearing from the scribes. And Jesus does not say, that prophecy from Malachi, that's talking about John. Don't you? He doesn't do that. He, he says the same thing. That Elijah has come, they did him whatever they wished. And they understood. He's talking about John. That's remarkable to me that they wanted so much to piece the puzzle together 
that they were able to draw those parallels and that level of understanding. Jesus knew they would be able to. That's why He didn't give them all the details. He wanted them to think for themselves. He wanted them to see things in the proper way. It goes back to what He would say at the end of the parable of the sower. They had ears to hear. Now, did they always understand everything Jesus said? No. And we'll see that as we continue in Mark. In fact, right before Jesus ascends back into heaven, Acts chapter 1, they're still confused about the kingdom. So there's some things they didn't grasp fully all the time. But a text like this shows us where their minds were and where their hearts were. And Jesus knows they can handle this. They can figure this out. This is about John. This is about the one who was the forerunner. And you're thinking, man, Adam's all over the place. This is a confusing text. Absolutely. That's the point of it. You're going, wait, the point of the Bible is to confuse me? No. We have to step back and piece a lot of this together. Because a text like this one tells us what was on Jesus' mind. Piece it back into what He had talked about just before the Mount of Transfiguration. He began to tell His apostles that the Son of Man would be delivered over, be killed, after three days He would rise. When He's on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are talking to Him about His exodus, His departure. Now, He's talking about stuff like Elijah and prophecy and John the Immerser and crucifixion and resurrection. It's all over the place. And it would be easy to say, well, what was on His mind was suffering. And that's true to a point. But when you put it all together, what was on His mind was the plan of God. By tying together Old Testament prophecies, pointing to someone like John, the forerunner of Jesus, by tying together the fact there were prophecies about the suffering of Jesus, by pointing to the fact that He was going to be killed, and by pointing to the fact that He was going to be raised and that all of that had been prophesied, He was trying to get these three apostles and then by inspiration tell us through the Scriptures that what we must do is see the unfolding plan of God. And what the rest of the book of Mark is going to be about is an absolute rush to the cross. Mark is the immediately book in the first half. And you're thinking, yeah, we've been in for 14 months. We know that. But that word immediately is found over and over and over. Immediately this happened. Straightway he went there. Immediately this. Now Jesus begins to talk about the cross. Now Jesus' mind is set to go to Jerusalem. Now He is thinking about the fact He is going to overcome death. All of this, He's known it. He's revealing it. And now we are on a, a rush On the side of a mountain, Jesus was telling these three, the way you think about it might not be the way God is thinking about it. But God's plan is unfolding. We should praise God this private conversation is recorded for us. Because it helps us to see that the entire Bible 
the entire narrative is unfolding right before our eyes, all within the timing of God. And that's what gives us hope. Everything is about the plan of God. And so, God's ways are not our ways. We, we, we might have thought if we were there, okay, what Jesus is getting ready to say is, you didn't actually see Elijah. <laughs> that was just a ghost. That was just like some first century hologram kind of thing. Okay, Elijah himself was actually going to... Or, yeah, you saw Elijah, but that was just to meet with me. Elijah actually is... No, no, you, you saw that. That was him. This is the way it's supposed to happen. And yes, I, I am going to the cross. Yes, I am going to be killed. Yes, I am. It doesn't make any sense. It's the plan of God. It doesn't make any sense to go down into some water and say, that's where I'm saved. It doesn't make any sense. It's the plan of God. Where we meet the death, the burial, and the resurrection found within the unfolding plan of God. If you've never done that, or you need to respond to be restored, please do so. Have you stand and sing to encourage?